Pause high, spike lights like a lightning strike. Left in the dark will turn mice biting on your mic. Thunder cracks gives you a fright, your plight sealed all night. Light the candle. The pit of power is more than you can handle. No video game enemies to strangle. You see, if you unplug this society, there would be many people staring at an empty screen. Saying, what does it all mean? Get out and ask people living in the scene. But now if you don't know, you Google it. Living on Facebook, what's love got to do with it? Dreaming of being the next YouTube phenomenon. What is wrong with you? I better suck on a thermometer. You got the fever, there's nothing that is stopping you. Except for the spyware shutting down your monitor. Welcome to Movement Revolution. I'm here with one of the most prolific people with his social media post, an extraordinary personal trainer who has a master's degree in biomechanics and movement science, and who just recently defended his PhD dissertation, 3M athletic performance co-founder, book author, record-holding Paralympic swimmer, the fitness pollinator, Travis Pollen. Hey, Travis. Hey, Ali. Thank you so much for that nice introduction. Hey, no worries. Uh, thank you so much for accepting the interview. I know you have oh. an awesome following already, so I hope we can add some more Filipino practitioners to your following. You know, it's, it's really cool. I seem to have a few Filipino followers already. Uh, I guess more on Facebook maybe than on Instagram, but it's, it's really neat to see like there's a, it seems like there's a really awesome community of movement professionals there. Um, and it's cool to connect with people so far away. Yeah. I also seen you with uh, Filipino practitioners over here. So that's how actually I was late to the party. I didn't know uh, much about you until uh, Tim Rowland sort of mentioned you in one of his posts. And then I saw other practitioners in the Philippines also um, raving about you. So it's been pretty good that you accepted this interview. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, I, Tim's a great guy and, uh, it, it's been such a, a fun experience working with him over the last little while uh, on the Physio Network, which I know you and he talked about actually in the previous episode. So mm -hmm. Yeah, that was fun. Can I just ask you quickly about what do you think about movement science? We have these, this kind of term called a movement specialist. What do you think about this term or do you think it, you know, it holds a lot of weight or especially it's for you. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, if you if you look at the kind of the the field of kinesiology, you might call that the overarching like the umbrella term mm -hmm. and within kinesiology you have exercise physiology, you have biomechanics, you have physiotherapy, athletic training and and it goes by a lot of different terms. So some programs might call that exercise science some some might call it kinesiology some might call it movement science and so i think they're all kind of the same idea but maybe with a different focus um like maybe just exercise science if that were like an undergraduate major that would be more of an exercise physiology focus um but i think in general movement science is the the idea that we're focusing on the movement or the mechanics of human movement. Uh, I mean, usually we're talking about humans, right? Mm -hmm, and yeah. uh, I like personally for me, it's been, it, it, it is really the field that sort of blended all of my interests coming mm -hmm. from an athletic background. I was a swimmer. 
-hmm. and my academic early career was as a physics major and so movement science I, I didn't even know mo about movement science really when I was first getting into this um, but I ended up you know doing my master's degree in biomechanics and movement science was the name of the program and so that ended up just being like I said this perfect hybrid for me of the sport and the athletic side also then with the physics side uh, and sort of that the merger of those two things and it I guess maybe it, it is more of a, a recent science I mean all of those fields have been around for a while but but the the names of the programs maybe are a little bit newer and especially as you get more towards the side of like high performance athletics and talking about mm -hmm. the data aspects of this which you know a lot of movement a lot of movement scientists are also i guess like a like a high performance degree uh, and these people would maybe work be working as sports scientists for uh, professional sports teams, mm -hmm. which is very much a model, I think, that comes from like the European football soccer um, domain, but is slowly bridging over into the States and into other sports. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, it's a, maybe a younger discipline relative to uh, some things that have been around forever, but it's it's just kind of the evolution of the those other professions. Yeah, thanks for that um, like brief intro on movement science. Uh, I guess it's better if, that it comes from you since you that's your masteral degree. Um, yeah, so, mm -hmm. so that was my master's, and then my doctorate is in rehabilitation science, which is a very you know related field. Yeah. But it we I guess the focus maybe you could say it was a little bit more on um, like a physical therapy, physiotherapy side of, of rehabilitation versus movement science doesn't, isn't necessarily dealing just with people who are injured and mm -hmm. the rehabilitation science is more focusing on that. But as you know, within physiotherapy, there's also uh, a push for prevention. And so yeah. when, when we talk about injury prevention, that's, we're not necessarily rehabilitating, but we're trying to prevent people from needing rehabilitation. So it, these things are all interrelated for sure. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned about injury prevention because recently I caught one of your interviews and was very interested in your views about injury prevention. One reason is because it feels like it's a dangerous thing to post anything about injury prevention in social media due to certain studies that, for example, state that FMS is not necessarily an injury prevention assessment program however your view was quite refreshing would you mind expounding that here for our listeners travis yeah of course and it's such a it's such a great question and such a it's like a it, it almost is like a taboo thing to even talk mm -hmm. about because as soon as you bring like i i've gotten into conversations with people whether they say there's no such thing as injury prevention you can only reduce the risk of injury. So we should be talking about injury risk reduction. And I just think that that's a kind of a silly semantics argument because while I acknowledge that nothing that we do will prevent all injuries because injuries, that some injuries are just uh, like unable to be prevented. They're, they're freak accidents, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So with that in mind, yes, we can't prevent all injuries, but if we prevent some injuries, 
then aren't we, is that not injury prevention? I think mm -hmm. if, even if we don't prevent them all. So that, that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is as soon as you say it, uh, people will get on you about the, the nitty gritty details about it with the like, oh, we, we're not able to, there's nothing that exists right now that can screen for uh, injury risk perfectly, right? So yeah. not, neither the FMS nor training load nor any other thing we can look at somebody prior to their injury and say, okay, we know this, per this person is going to get injured. We can say, based on the presence of these risk factors, we know that this person is at elevated risk, uh, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that they will get hurt. Um, so it's better to use these risk factors on more of a, a team basis or like a, a sport basis. Like, okay, mm -hmm. we know that um, reduced hamstring strength is a risk factor for injury in soccer players or football players. Yeah. So uh, based on that information, not, but not only does that mean that we should look and check each person's hamstring strength and only give the people who have weaker hamstrings a, a hamstring training program, but we can just easily have everyone do hamstring training, knowing that that is going to help them reduce their risk prevent some injuries, but not all. And so, yeah, it's like you said, it's as soon as you start talking about injury prevention, people, you know, come from left and right on social media and say, you know, injury prevention is impossible. Injury screening is impossible. And it's just part of it is using the right terminology so that you're, you're being careful about the, the words that you're using. Um, but the other part of it is, acknowledging the limitations of the tools that we have right now and especially realizing that when you do have an intervention that is effective like a nordic hamstring curl or like a copenhagen adductor plank mm -hmm. uh, it it does appear right now that it is best to just apply those interventions to all of the athletes regardless of their baseline strength um, because it's it's easy to do and that way you don't miss out on anybody who appeared at baseline like they were strong uh, but then went on to get injured anyway so it's kind of just an easy way to cover all your bases and have everybody do the in injury prevention program and in reality that's just good training like we know that getting stronger you know building hamstring strength building adductor strength is good training so injury prevention training and and general strength and conditioning are really the same thing um, it's, it's about targeting the risk factors or the, the common, uh, the, the most common injuries in the particular sport that you're working with. Yeah. So, uh, when I am asked to speak, sometimes I always mention the, the Nordic hamstring curl and also the recently the Copenhagen adductor because they're such great, um, exercise and they have some like really good evidence coming from them. So. I, I like to speak about that and tell people how, how much it's um, like important for their workouts or their exercises or even the warmups. Yeah. And the, the great thing about those two is that you don't need any equipment, right? So mm -hmm, yeah. as long as you have a partner, you can get those done just right on the field in warm up or whatever. And the other cool thing is that it doesn't take like a crazy dosage either. Like you could do those a couple times a week. Um, 
and it, it's just fast. And it's mm -hmm. when you have an intervention like that, that is easy to do. Well, not, not easy to do because actually Nordic hamstring curls are like <laughs> yeah. a very strenuous exercise, but, but when it, when it's fast and when it doesn't require any equipment, it, it is a no brainer, but we do see in the research that compliance is not always the best with these things. Yeah, true. So that is where the research is really important right now is better understanding what the like what the barriers are to implementing those things mm -hmm. um and, and trying to figure out how how to make people actually comply and do those exercises as part of their warm-up or as part of their cool down or as part of a separate session but just making sure that you're able to get them in somewhere yeah you know just recently you mentioned about um people when you post something in social media sometimes you can get messages back and forth or from all from all sides and i just love the way you approach it when people try to like talk to you you're always so open and you know that's pretty cool that's what's why uh it's it's great following you in social media i appreciate that i mean and i i try to be as as open to other ideas as possible and you know, there are definitely other people out there I know who, as soon as somebody comes on their feed disagreeing with them, it's like a quick block. <laughs> yeah. And I would rather try to better understand their argument and, and, and maybe understand where I'm missing things or misinterpreting things. Because, like every time I post something, I, I learn. So it's great to have those sorts of, you know, smart people who, even, even if they are a little bit hostile towards <laughs> Uh, the original posts, um, it's, uh, I, I treat it, I always try to treat it as an opportunity to learn from everybody and everybody's got a lot of, you know, their own unique experiences that they bring to the table. So even if, uh, you know, maybe they've re read research that I haven't read or maybe they've worked with a lot of patients uh, or clients in person and they've found some, something that works that I, I would be happy to entertain that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, like recently your post about the pain scale intensity when exercising. So, yeah, it's such a, a very nice post because especially coming from a physio background, like we're all tasked to like lessen pain right away before exercising. And then just posting something. I've seen this before, um, but then it's always nice to keep on getting refreshing blog posts or social media posts to just, you know, remind people that, hey, this this way of exercising is actually kind of helpful that you don't always have to exercise with zero pain, you know? Yeah. And so that was something that if you had asked me even a year ago, I, I wasn't really up on that or privy to it. And finally I, I came across some research and I came across some other people talking about it and saying, you know, it's okay to be in a little bit of pain when you're exercising, when you're, in in this context, it's often talking about rehabilitating from an injury. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it would be more in a physical therapy context. But, you know, going going up to maybe a three or maybe a four out of the 10 point scale is okay. And coming from my background, I'm, I originally was a personal, originally was trained as a personal trainer and still work as a personal mm -hmm. trainer in addition to the research that I do. Um, but on the personal training side of things, we were always taught, uh, to avoid pain and if something hurts to back away from that and so then being exposed to you know if you're if you're doing 
exercising in a controlled setting and you know that you're safe uh, and yeah. you, you're, you're under supervision of a skilled professional, then it is okay to poke into a little bit of pain, especially for certain types of injuries. At first, when I first heard about that, that was just really eye-opening for me mm -hmm. uh, because I, I was not aware of that. Um, and now I've seen more research showing that that's okay. And it's not, you know, like the whole pain does not necessarily equal tissue damage and mm -hmm. pain is an alarm system. And sometimes the alarm system is too sensitive. And so, yeah. uh, especially when you're talking about pain that has lasted, you know, beyond normal tissue recovery time. So mm -hmm. you would believe that the tissue has fully recovered and yet somebody's still experiencing pain, then now we, it, it's going to be a matter of graded exposure and going into a little bit of pain and then showing that the person's okay. And hopefully over time, they're able to do more with the same amount of pain or they're able to do the same thing with less pain. But it does, it's not something that always needs to be, you know, oh, pain is bad. We need to <laughs> avoid that. It's like, oh, okay, this is, this is just our nervous system telling us something and we can acknowledge it. And if we're safe to do so, we can continue. Awesome. Uh, one thing that comes into mind about like trying to play, play or exercise through pain is of course tendinopathy because sometimes you, uh, the main thing is you have to load it, right? Even if there might be a little pain, you still got to try to increase the load or at least make the body or that tendon um, adaptable to some certain load. Right. So that's the one, that's the big one that I first heard that this was, you know, the, the best approach for it. And then I recently came across a study that was looking at hamstring strain recovery, and they had two groups, one that exercised up to a four out of 10 pain rating, and then the other group didn't progress their exercises if they were experiencing any pain. And the groups performed very similarly. And um, I forget what the exact details were, but I think the return to play was about the same in each group. And the group that had gone in more aggressive in terms of the strengthening, the early strengthening and the allowing a little bit of pain, I believe they were a little bit stronger at the end of the intervention than the control group. So wow. that is encouraging that you yeah. don't need to worry about a little bit of pain as you are rehabbing an injury like that. Yeah, it's really nice that you discussed that and something that we can like try to research on that study you mentioned. But you also mentioned that you've been uh, personal training for a while. How many years would that be? So I first got my certification in 2013 mm -hmm. and I worked for about a year, do it like full time as a personal trainer. I was, I was in a couple of different gyms from a commercial gym to then a, like a boutique training studio. Uh, and then I went back to school for my master's degree. So during that time I was just training on the side, mostly online. So mm -hmm. writing workouts for people remotely after my master's degree, I did an internship at a sports performance facility, uh, where we trained mostly youth athletes, especially hockey players. So I did mm -hmm. that for about a year before then going back for my PhD and returning to mostly an online setting. Yeah, this you mentioned about the hockey background that you have because uh, I think you worked with somebody and you that's where the book came came yeah, out from. Yeah, so 
Yeah, so my mentor at the, during the internship is a guy by the name of Kevin Neald, who is now, who at the time was the director of performance at the facility I worked at, but now he is the Boston Bruins strength coach. Yeah, so, I saw that. Yeah, so that is, I mean, super educational experience to be able to work under somebody so knowledgeable and just get, you know, just to be able to learn from him every day. Um, and over the course of the internship, we, we started working on a book and it, it ended up finally coming out uh, actually last year. So it was a few years in the making. Um, and it was basically like his, a good chunk of his system uh, for training young hockey players. Um, and so it's, you know, it's, it, we're still selling it right now. Um, we made a big push last off season when it first came out. Mm -hmm. It's not, so it's, it's mostly directed as an off season training program for hockey players. Right now, everything's crazy because <laughs> the hockey season, you know, got put yeah. on pause and, who knows? I'm, I'm not even really sure how that's working with youth athlete leagues, let alone the pros right now. I don't know if they've mm -hmm. figured that out either. So it's, a, of course, a weird time to be to have a book about off-season hockey training when the off-season is so murky and yeah. gyms are closed. So yeah. it's not like a great time. But the book is on sale right now for mm -hmm. anybody who is a hockey player or, you know, a, a parent of a hockey player or, or even works with hockey players. Um, basically we have a, a 12 week off season training program as part of the book, as well as just, a, about a hundred pages of explanation of why everything in the training, training program is the way it is. Yeah. You might be surprised. We actually have a national hockey team here. Oh we, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we just had, uh, they competed in the Southeast Asian games cause, uh, that I was, that was my stint last year. I was in, uh, but not with hockey. Although I've saw, I've seen that um, some of my peers were, like for example, rehabilitating or going to their their team games. Well, that must have been a really cool experience. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, for me, it was in my, on my side, it was pretty cool because I was in the surfing competition. It, it was the very first surfing competition in the Southeast Asian Games. So if you're not too familiar with Southeast Asian games, it's just like Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, all these um, countries just near our region. Mm -hmm. So there, so it was fun because it was the very first surfing competition for that tournament. So, and I was the physio, team physio for Team Philippines. So that was cool. So I guess that means you're, are you an avid surfer or did you have to pick up a lot of like understanding of that sport on the fly? I had to pick up a lot of understanding on the fly, but because, um, you know, you know, my work at national team, we have to like, previously we, we have to rehab a lot of sports from all, all, all over. So it's not just, um, surfing. And also the home base was in Manila and surfing as a, in our, in our country, it's, you know, all the way there to the beach. So there are like maybe three amazing surf spots that produce amazing surfers. One is down south, where I was also sent for a for a week, and then in that competition it was up north in La Union. So, yeah, I that's why I was so interested in in asking you about some of your uh, swimming experience. So, because uh, in a way, surfers need a lot of swimming to compete, right? Especially when they're trying yeah. to get their waves. Yeah, I mean, I I've only seen the little bits that I've seen on TV and YouTube, but 
uh, right as i understand it it's it's swimming until you get into the position on the board mm -hmm. of course until you get into the position that you want to be in so there would have to be a lot of fast maneuvering and yeah. powerful actions to then stand up and mind-blowing things yeah. that they do it's uh the one i was surprised with was like you know for example in in a heat or in a certain in, in surfing when you have to catch a wave you just and you're like so far from the from where, where the waves are you have to swim fast just to catch it and then make another uh, run that's why recently i've been interested about swimming and luckily that you have a lot of swimming experience that's why um, i was kind of asking you a lot about swimming questions before yeah no i i I, I've never even really thought about what you're describing, but basically you're saying somebody could be really fatigued just getting to the position yeah, where they're going to for start sure. the thing that they're actually being scored on, I guess. So now we're talking about a sport where you're operating under a high presence of fatigue and trying to balance and maneuver and yeah. be agile, not to mention like the dangers of that sport. Yeah, you have to be like, sometimes they, they, they grade you on power and you're like how nice the, your, your surface, surfing the wave was. So it's really an interesting and nice sport. And uh, I was very lucky to be Team Philippines Fisher for that, for that competition. So did you find a lot of people complaining about shoulder issues? Yeah, for or? sure. Okay, so that's yeah. kind of... Is that, the, would you say that's the number one thing or is it more lower extremity? It was actually shoulder and low back. Yeah. But, yeah. But for shoulder, I guess sometimes um, a, a few rehab techniques, like just trying to give them activation exercises and, you know, just kind of educating them about how to do certain things that kind of help. But with the back pain, you know, that's, that's a totally different animal, right? Yeah. I mean... It, it, that's a, a tough one, especially for that sport, I would think. I guess since we're already in the swimming, do you mind just giving our listeners a few bits about your PhD dissertation? Yeah, sure. So I did a study, a prospective study on risk factors for injury in swimmers. So a lot of the things we just mentioned in relation to shoulders for surfers, I think would apply equally here. But basically, we looked at a bunch of risk factors. So we looked at previous injuries, which across sports, we know pretty well that a previous injury is a, often an important risk factor for mm -hmm. a future injury. We also looked at movement patterns on land. Maybe the listeners are familiar with the functional movement screen. Um, we took parts of the functional movement screen, but did something fairly more comprehensive than that. Our test, we had a 14 test battery that we did with the athletes and mm -hmm. I think six of those 14 tests were functional movement derived from the functional movement screen. Then we looked at a bunch of different other things. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to that, we looked at freestyle swimming technique. So freestyle being the stroke that the athletes uh, engage in for the, uh, the majority of their training usually, and it makes up the bulk of the com competition event, race events. Uh, and then we looked also at training load so uh how much training the athletes were doing each day each week uh and kind of the the progression of that so comparing uh, basically there's a this ratio called the acute to chronic workload ratio 
that factors the athlete's current week of training relative to the rest of the month of training that they've just done. And so the idea is that uh, if you have a large spike in the training that you have done in the last week, compared to what you've been accustomed to doing over the last month, you might be more at risk for injury. So we looked at that. And then the last thing that we looked at was perceived susceptibility to injury, which is not a super common uh, measure, but it's, it's a, a psychosocial variable yeah, where we I remember this. the athletes. Yeah, we asked the athletes on a scale of one to five, uh, what, at the beginning of the season, what they perceived their chance of injury to be. And there's a little bit of research uh, based on this model called the health belief model that says if an athlete perceives their risk to be low, then they might be less likely to engage in preventative measures, which could in turn make them more susceptible to injury. So kind of counterintuitive, but uh, I mean, based on that logic, maybe you can see how that would be. And so anyway, we, we did this study over one season with one team of swimmers, uh, males and females. So we had a total of 37 athletes, which was on the smaller side of a, I mean, it's all relative. It's a reasonable number of people, but when you have 37 people, you can only, basically from a statistical standpoint, mm -hmm. you can only say so much with so much statistical confidence. Um, mm -hmm. You always want to have more people so that you can uh, look at more variables or have more confidence in the effects that you're observing. But we were able to get the 37 people and in the end, what we found was that previous injuries were, as expected, a, an important risk factor. So if an athlete had a previous injury, I think they were about four times more likely to uh, have an injury in the current season. And we also found that the injuries tended to coincide with uh, high training loads. So if you're familiar with swimming, at least in the United States, mm -hmm. Uh, college swimmers often go on this training trip in the towards the like middle uh, late middle part of the season um, the, it's during it happens to be during the, the Christmas break yeah or the holiday yeah. break from school uh, and they'll travel to uh, an, an island or just somewhere exotic somewhere warm during the winter months all right uh, somewhere warm that's good <laughs> I was oh, thinking, it's, like, it's winter and swimming outside the, the lake or something like that <laughs> Well, it's, it's funny, actually, yeah. because uh, when I swam, we, we would go to Puerto Rico or we would go to Aruba, which are nice. pretty much warm year-round. But I had a, a friend who he swam at a different university, and his team went to Florida. And Florida is also usually warm, mm -hmm. uh, like around, I, I forget what where they were, Fort Lauderdale or Orlando or wherever it was. But it happens to be that at that time, it wasn't that warm. And they were stuck swimming outside in, you know, it might not have been uh, 60 degrees, but it might yeah. have been 70. And 70 is not as warm as 80 or 90 if you're swimming outside. So, um, but anyway, during those trips, um, you are mostly doing two practices a day in the pool. Um, and it's coming off, uh, it's coming after the holiday break where, some student athletes have been training a lot uh, mm -hmm. with their, maybe with their high school teams or with their club teams. And some have really not been doing a whole heck of a lot at all. Uh, either they didn't have pool access during that time or they were lazy or whatever it is. 
So you go from that potentially not having done a lot to now doing two practices a day for 10 days. And you can see why a lot of the injuries might happen during that time. And, and that was what yeah. we found. And so again, small sample size, but we can sort of make some recommendations maybe about just being careful to weigh the risk of that imposing that kind of workload um, relative to the reward that you get from engaging in that, you know, uh, bout of high load training. Yeah, so, but I'm sure, so, sorry, yeah. I'm sure it's Go not ahead. that easy to get like um, uh, participants for for that kind of study, right? You have to go to so many gyms or so many swimming clubs. Yeah, so it it was really tricky. Um, yeah. So the university that I did my research at, that, that was the team that I initially approached or, or mm -hmm. the athletic department. And they, it was, it's a division one university. And so for whatever reason, there were a lot of roadblocks and barriers to doing it there. And so I ended up doing it at a different school uh, that okay. was division three. Um, and just, I think a little bit, um, a few things. I think the, the, the coach there was just curious, you know, intellectually what, uh, why they were seeing the injuries that they were seeing uh, and just uh, allowed greater, uh, you know, an outsider to come in mm -hmm. and be, I was there a lot during, uh, you know, the beginning of the season, collecting data yeah. and hanging out. And <laughs> so uh, it wasn't like the easiest thing to do, but it, um, to, to be a, a you know participate in the study, but thankfully the with the coach fully supportive, um, most of the student athletes who were on the team agreed to participate in the study, um, and the coach was really helpful throughout the season in getting us the injury data that we needed and the training load data that we needed. Um, and it's just yeah, it's when you you know you can read research and you can uh, understand research, but actually having the experience of conducting this research, you, you're just better able to understand the, the challenges logistically of conducting it, even a smaller sample size study like that, um, when you are needing to account for where, even something as simple as what each person did each day in practice um, over the course of uh, 22 weeks, it, it was a big undertaking. Yeah, for sure. I'd it's so crucial when you mention about the coach, because if the coach is not on board with you, you know, in my experience uh, in, in team sports, it's, it's very tough to implement something. Yes. And that, that <laughs> is universally the case, whether you're doing research or whether you are uh, working as the athletic trainer or the, the sports scientist, um, having that coach buy-in is, is the biggest thing because you could, you know, you could have great insights, and if the coach is not willing to uh, listen to your input, or mm -hmm. uh, or just wants to continue doing what they've always done, then it can make it a, a very tough dynamic. And so, you know, the the best way to do that is to show, just demonstrate that you're giving great insights uh, and actionable things that the coach sees the value in, but sometimes you could do that and the coach could still be old school and just not open to your ideas. And it, it's, it's a constant struggle that I have witnessed in 
uh, in my dealings with mm-hmm. across professions, not just with the coaches, but even with, you know, physical therapists interfacing with sports medicine docs and, and all of those people interfacing with athletic trainers, it's, everybody seems to have a little bit of an ego and <laughs> like we all just want yeah. the best for the athletes. Right. But um, for whatever reason, people have a hard time communicating or um, I don't know, there are certain barriers to interprofessional collaboration that I wish didn't exist. And it's, I'm sort of on a mission to try to figure out how to break those barriers down uh, and just facilitate better communication to ultimately give athletes a better you know a better chance there you go travis ballin on a mission to bridge the divide between interprofessional communication i am sure it is something we can all relate to in one way or another because it would be the athletes or our patients who would benefit in the end thank you for listening we still have a second part for the interview i hope you can come back to the movement revolution podcast I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share these amazing people to you at the top of your device. If you have any questions, just send me a message at ollie at opadvancement.com or at oliverscgp.advancement in FB or IG. Thank you so much to our graphic artist, Veronica. Also to Haynes Rhymes for our intro and background music, www. These are just thoughts going through my head A moment of reflection that you soon forget Imagine a world without the internet Where you can't download your intellect These are just thoughts going through my head A moment of reflection that you soon forget Imagine a world without the internet Where you can't download your intellect Hashtag trending, Snapchat, Insta, Periscope, Esports, BuzzFeed, Tinder So many ways to meet people online No one ever has one talk at a time Messenger, WhatsApp, groups pinging everywhere Better make it happen now, wait a minute, no one cares People press like, they think it means something Everybody's real like should mean something Now if you don't know, Wikipedia, who remembers encyclopedias? If you need a holiday, Expedia, Skyscanner, Airbnb, much speedier Does shopping online make us greedier? But it's even to the needy now easier I can't even hold it together WWW, we write whatever New tech outdates, freaking and phone updates, can't really why wait? Search for new mates. Nothing is private, it's all in the cloud. Is this a maintenance even allowed? You used to shout from the hills to be proud. A good signal will sort you out now. Virtual reality is high definition. The secret to the things in your life you're missing. Blog your way into the big time achievements only exist if they're online. Apparently, people used to use landlines, agree to a mutual place and time. But what happened if they changed their mind? How about sat nav? How did they find it? Midnight snack attack, have a copy cabbage patch, technophobic, there's probably a nap for that. These are just thoughts going through my head. A moment of reflection that you soon forget. Imagine a world without the internet where you can't download your intellect these are just thoughts going through my head a moment of reflection that you soon forget imagine a world without the internet where you can't download your intellect